This vigil was held on the day Brazilian federal police confirmed the second set of human remains found in the Amazon are those of indigenous expert Bruno Pereira. Activists wore costumes of rainforest animals to remind Brazilians that Pereira died protecting indigenous territories from illegal fishermen and poachers. Hello and welcome back to LATAM Dialogues, the podcast series in which the team at LATAM Dialogue covers some of the most important issues and trends in Latin America. I am Sonia, Editor-in-Chief at LATAM Dialogue, and you just heard an extract from an Al Jazeera report from three months ago after police in Brazil confirmed they found the body of dedicated defender of Brazilian indigenous rights, Bruno Pereira. Bruno and British journalist Dom Phillips were murdered while working to protect indigenous people of the Amazon region from illegal drug traffickers, miners, loggers and hunters. This tragic story is unfortunately not an isolated event, and more and more indigenous and human rights defenders are being targeted, harmed and even murdered in Latin America. In this episode, we wanted to put a spotlight on the situation and the dangers facing human rights defenders in Latin America. These are people who, individually or with others, act to promote or protect human rights in a peaceful manner. Whether they be lawyers, journalists, doctors or just ordinary people, being a human rights defender has become very dangerous in Latin America. So today, Isabel and I are very pleased to welcome Mary Lawler on our podcast. She is currently the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights Defenders. She was appointed to this position for a three-year term in May 2020. And before this, she founded and directed Frontline Defenders, which is an international foundation for the protection of human rights defenders around the world. So clearly she is an expert in the field of the situation of human rights defenders. So we are extremely excited to talk to her today. Hi, Mary, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, I'll also say hi to Isabel, who is the other editor of Latin Dialogue, who will be helping me interview Mary today. Hi, Izzy. Hi, Sonia, and hello to all our listeners. So I reckon we um, dive straight in. And Mary, I think my first question I have for you is quite straightforward. Um, Because you're such an interesting woman, I would love for you to just quickly introduce yourself to our listeners um, and maybe provide a brief overview of the work you have done and continue to do today to protect human rights defenders. Right. Uh, So um, my name is Mary Lawler. As you said, I was appointed by the UN Human Rights Council in May 2020 to be the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders. And I reckon this came about because uh, I've been working for close to 45 years now in human rights and specifically since 2000 on human rights defenders. Um, uh, they were always the people who I, I, I felt uh, deserved so much protection because they put themselves in danger for the rights of other people, not for their, themselves, but for the rights of other people peacefully uh, opposing injustice. So I set up frontline defenders to try and help protect them. And, as the, and that then when I retired, a couple of years later, I applied for, uh, well, I was nominated for this job and I was lucky to get it. So the mandate of the Special Rapporteur is to try and help protect human rights defenders, to bring their voices to the international community, to try and implement the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, which was adopted by the UN in 1998, to do two country visits a year, 
and to do two reports a year, one to the Human Rights Council and this next one next week to the General Assembly. And, uh, and then the, the tool I have that is most widely used is to write formal communications. These are formal letters to oppressive governments about the situation of individual human rights defenders and follow up with them advocating on their behalf. Very interesting. In the context of your work as the um, UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights defenders, as you already mentioned, one of the key things you and I guess your team work on are annual thematic reports. And you have one, as you said, that you're going to be presenting to the UN General Assembly um, later in October. Um, and could you provide us a brief overview of this report? And I know it's called um, Refusing to Turn Away, but I think it'd be very interesting to our listeners to know more about it. Yes, of course. Um, it was some years ago when the refugee and migrant crisis started that I became aware of the treatment that defenders of refugees, migrants and asylum seekers were, were getting. Um, and it came as a great shock to me because I always thought that solidarity, you know, I grew up believing that helping people was seen as a good thing. And now I was seeing human rights defenders who were offering uh, things like legal advice to asylum seekers, doctors who are just trying to provide medicine, others who provide soup to people at the end of their garden or try and shelter them overnight. They were being criminalized. They were uh, getting charges like illegal entry, uh, a a, sorry, um, a a aiding and abetting illegal entry. Uh, espionage, money laundering, really serious charges simply for providing humanitarian and human rights assistance to desperate people. So I decided to do a report on this and uh, the report details how all over the, the world they risk being prosecuted, jailed and even killed in some cases for this, this help. So that's what I really wanted to show that uh, it has now become a crime to help refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. Uh, solidarity is criminalized and compassion has no place. I mean, it's it's shocking to hear how, how people who are trying to defend basic human rights are treated in these contexts. Um, and our next question for you, Mary, is a bit more general. So broadly speaking, how would you define a human rights defender yourself? And what are the key issues facing human rights defenders around the world? Yes, um, the, I define a human rights defender as someone who is working peacefully for the human rights of other people uh, in accordance with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other international, in, in, international uh, standards. And um, it, human rights defenders can be anybody. You know, they can be people working in NGOs, human rights NGOs, but they can also be teachers, doctors, lawyers. We saw in COVID, a lot of doctors became human rights defenders as they tried to uh, highlight the abuse of um, medicine and the abuse of systems regarding COVID. And, um, and they, can, they can be students like we see in Iran at the moment, the awful situation of, of the young women 
who I consider to be human rights defenders. Normally, I don't take all protesters as human rights defenders, but I think in Iran, where, where there is absolutely no freedom of expression or right to protest, then these people are uh, bravely um, demonstrating at great personal risk for the rights of women. So they can be, they can have dual roles. I don't take up political activists or anyone who's been elected to office, but that's how I define. And um, as per your report from July of this year, um, it was stated that eight communications concerning the situation of human rights defenders were sent to Latin America uh, or the Latin American group in particular. Um, this does seem like quite a high amount so why do you think this is the case um, in specifically in the region of Latin America? Well, let's be clear, you know, all around the world, human rights defenders are being intimidated. They're being criminalized. They face torture, imprisonment, uh, death threats online and offline. And for women, particularly online threats like doxing and stuff like that. Uh, but then uh, it moves offline and it creates an environment where they can be physically attacked. And in many cases, it ends in either death or disappearance, murder or disappearance. So it's very, it's very widespread. But when we come to um, uh, Latin America, I do think that uh, the situation in Latin America where um, journalists and human rights defenders are very much at risk is um, because of uh, the, the, the endemic violence that it permeates Latin America. So you see a, a lot of violence against women human rights defenders, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender human rights defenders. Uh, you see, again, the intimidation and the torture and the killings uh, while that I spoke about. And a, a lot of it takes place in the context of business and human rights. And most of the attacks and killings are in that context, and particularly when it comes to land, environment, and indigenous people's rights. And um, of course, as you mentioned, um, indigenous rights are an extremely salient issue at, at the moment. Um, what would you say are the specific difficulties for indigenous rights, group, uh, rights defenders and also their communities in Latin America in particular? Well, it's 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 about uh, their right to mainly it's about, uh, as I said, in the context of business and human rights. So you have all these trans transnational corporations coming in and uh, it's usually extractive mining or agribusiness that uh, takes place. Uh, the indigenous communities are displaced. They're not uh, consulted with about whatever the, the development is. Uh, their ancestral lands are just, uh, their right to their ancestral lands are, is ignored. The water is polluted, there's illegal logging, uh, all of that kind of thing. And, there, and you see the perpetrators can be, for example, in the case of Honduras with Bertha Caceres, eight members of the company were, uh, were charged that was a first time company members were charged, but it can be local police, local thugs hired by the company. It can be corrupt local authorities. The threats can come from everywhere. And we know 
that, uh, that uh, the, there is a crossover between indigenous and land and environment, because for indigenous people, clearly the uh, environment and land have a very deep spiritual and cultural value. Thank you for that, Mary. Um, I want to move on to speak about some specific countries in Latin America. Um, and I don't think currently, as we are recording this episode in October 2022, we can't not talk about the elections in Brazil. Um, and actually, mm. your colleague at um, Frontline Defenders, Jim, he recently wrote a very interesting article for Latin Dialogue, which I would encourage our listeners to read um, about the situation of um, human rights defenders in Brazil. So my question for you is whether or not you think that the outcome of these elections will have an impact on the situation for human rights defenders in Brazil. Well, I'd like to start by saying elections are often tense and dangerous times for human rights defenders around the world. We see that um, in the run up to elections, during elections and after elections. So before we guess at what might happen after the results are known, we need to focus on their safety while the campaign is still on. Uh, we know, for example, that they're often scapegoated and targeted during times of political tension for trying to report on irregularities in, in the process. And we're watching to see if they are allowed to advocate for human rights uh, without being attacked. And of course, Brazil is a country where there are numerous attacks against human rights defenders anyway. Uh, again, in the context of uh, land, indigenous and um, environmental rights, but also uh, uh, ethnic groups and women and the most marked, the poor, people in the favelas, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's, it's a bit premature to talk about uh, the impact of the elections will have on human rights defenders in the country. First, we have to make sure that they take place in, in a safe way, that human rights defenders are protected and allowed to do their monitoring work, and also that election observers are allowed to do their monitoring work, because if they are targeted, they also are human rights defenders. Absolutely, and um, I think another country that has received a lot of attention for its kind of very precarious uh, situation facing human rights defenders is, is Mexico. So could you explain to our listeners um, what the situation for Me Mexican human rights defenders is, and especially what's been reported on it, because there was a, a very high number of communications sent to Mexico, I believe. Yeah, I mean, Mexico, uh... I, I do believe the Mexican government, uh, certainly the diplomats, are very aware of the situation in Mexico. But we have seen human rights defenders and journalists, and they're subjected to all sorts of uh, uh, arbitrary detention, death threats, physical attacks, enforced disappearances. My heart always breaks when I talk to family members of disappeared people, um, because it is, for me, the cruelest of um, one of the cruelest of uh, human rights violations in that uh, the family can never uh, stop. Uh, and I was, on a, I was on a meeting with human rights defenders from Mexico the other two weeks ago, and it was all with families of the disappeared. And they, they talked about how it gives, uh, searching for their loved ones give meaning to their life. And I'm thinking to myself, they've all lost their loved ones, but for them to 
go forward and have meaning in their life and have hope. They even use the word hope. They need to know what has happened to, to, their, to their loved ones. So, and this happens in, in, in the context of defending human rights, these disappearances. And they often mean with collusion from the state um, and they risk, um, you know, defenders in Mexico risk the same sort of threats um, and the same sort of uh, 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 charges as, as, as both in the rest of Latin America, but also around the world where, as I said, they are criminalized, defamed, tortured, imprisoned. In fact, we had one bit of good news last year when a long-term case of a Mexican human rights defender, Freddy Garcia, was uh, he was released. So that was a great joy to us. Um, uh, so yeah, so they're on the risk of losing their lives. And uh, again, the drugs trade is very much um, part of it. Uh, I've just done um, a communication on a pastor who works with Mexican uh, refugees and migrants, and uh, he was abducted by gunmen uh, from the cartel um, uh, in, in, uh, in June. And uh, in this case, the Mexican National Guard and uh, uh, Army came in, so no ransom had to be paid. But just the other week, the cartels closed his shelters that he manages and started pursuing him again. So now he's in a life-threatening situation and there's no plan in place to protect him. And also um, people working for the indigenous community, like two Jesuit priests um, were shot dead um, by gunmen inside a church in the ind indigenous community in Chihuahua. And again, they were just working for the rights of indigenous people. Yeah, it's a very interesting, as Isabel said, precarious situation for human rights defenders in Mexico specifically. You, you already slightly touched on this, but I would love to ask you when you send, for example, these communications to the Mexican authorities or to other governments in Latin America, um, how have they responded in the past to these communications? Yeah, well, it, it, it varies, of course, uh, not only in Mexico and Latin America, but all over the world. Some countries respond sometimes. And about half of the communications we raise through official channels get considered responses. But there are other avenues of engagement happening all the time as well. So I make it a priority to talk to state officials from any country who will talk to me. Uh, we also use Twitter a lot, and we find that very often um, uh, Twitter is a good vehicle for hearing something very disturbing in a quick way because the communication system, uh, I mean, the letters take a long time in the UN system if there's a whole procedure around them. But this way you can get information out quickly, which is good. And very often it leads to it leads to action. And what I'm really amazed about is that um, governments will do anything to try and preserve their their reputation. They hate any kind of publicity, and that's why I'm so keen. And thank you for giving me this chance to get the word out about human rights defenders. Just one one other thing I I thought of. Uh, very often these governments they tell you that human rights defenders are terrorists you know, or that they're acting against the interests of the state. 
or their security risks or subversives or something like that. But the truth is, they're not. They're peaceful people who challenge the abuse of power by governments and, and business and other stakeholders. And um, I know, I keep telling them, I know the difference between a human rights defender and a terrorist. I've been doing this work for a very long time and it has taught me how to identify who is a human rights defender and who is a terrorist. But that's their common, you know, that's their common get back at me clause, if you know what I mean, but I don't take it from them. <laughs> very good. So obviously governments have a very important role to play in terms of, well, improving, for lack of a better term, the situation in their, in their domestic countries for human rights defenders. But what about the international community? So in what ways could the international community, for example, I'm thinking of large IOs such as, well, the UN, where you work, and the EU, what roles can they play to help improve the situation for human rights defenders in Latin America? Well, I mean, it all comes down to political will and political pressure. And while, you know, uh, NGOs and human rights defenders can raise cases, can alert the international community and monitor and document abuses, at the end of the day, it's up to the oppressive government to, to decide to protect human rights defenders. And if they're not going to do it willingly, then it takes the pressure of states that uh, can um, exert pressure on them to help. So I, I think that the EU as a bloc um, needs to be con constantly uh, raising cases through the EU dialogues and making sure that the, the states uh, in Latin America understand that human rights defenders and the protection of human rights defenders is a, a priority for the European Union. And when it comes to the UN, the, you know, the, the UN itself also has some, uh, oh, I, I'm independent of the UN, but I know that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has country teams on the ground, and they themselves need to be putting pressure on the, on the specific and particular government. Uh, and also the embassies, the EU embassies and the EU delegations on the ground. And, uh, and, and then, of course, there's the possibility of using the universal periodic review, which, which is where states examine each other's states' human rights record, raising the issue of human rights defenders in that. Uh, tomorrow, I'll be sending the, the uh, states that are being examined by the UPR um, a briefing with uh, information about human rights defenders in the countries being examined who have been uh, threatened and the situation of those human of human rights defenders generally in that country. So they're the kind of avenues. And you know, to be honest, it's all about one little step at a time. And it it's it's like pushing a boulder up the hill. But the main thing is to persist and to resist and uh, to make sure that you know it, it's an ongoing process. It's just not a one-off. And uh, Mary, just to end on a, a brighter note, um, there was a, a few mentions in your report of some of the positive actions that have been achieved so far in Latin America. Um, so you, you mentioned Costa Rica and how it had become home to many human rights defenders from Nicaragua, for example. So could you just elaborate a bit on this, please? Yeah, well, I mean, it's always good, for example, when countries and Costa Rica is a country in the region that does 
uh, is good on human rights defenders. They have uh, been uh, uh, become home uh, to many uh, human rights defenders working, and um, and also human rights defenders working at Colombia's border with Venezuela. Um, they they are reporting that they are in a very serious context because their armed groups involved in drug trafficking are directly attacking them and the migrants they try to help. But we're very, very excited about the change in Colombia and the, what the Colombian government has also um, already put in place to help uh, human rights defenders. So we're watching very closely. It's a bit early to say whether uh, what's proposed will be implemented fully and how the new president will get on, but certainly the signs are good. So very happy about that. The other thing that I think needs to be acknowledged is that the Colombian government and the, and the various governments, in fact, in Latin America have protection mechanisms for human rights defenders, where they offer things like um, uh, bodyguards or um, armed uh, vehicles or whatever, uh, uh, or they relocate people to a safer area. Now, this is all really good, but the problem is these, these protection mechanisms are poorly resourced and they, they are um, imperfect. There's no doubt about them because, for example, in Colombia, um, I know from some human rights defenders, some of the former paramilitaries were employed as drivers and uh, obviously human rights defenders didn't feel safe with them. So there's a lot of there's a lot of improvements needed, but the idea of protection mechanisms that can respond quickly and flexibly to human rights defenders when they're in grave danger is, is very good. Um, uh, but the real test would be a drastic reduction in, in the um, hundreds of human rights defenders who are killed every year in Latin America. Mm, thank you, that's very interesting. Indeed, I think actually we have published some articles on Latin Dialogue about um, the new uh, Colombian president Petro and all the reforms that he's implementing. So indeed, I've also thought to myself, it's definitely will be interesting to follow potential changes and reforms in Colombia over the next few years. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. So all I have left to say is just a a very huge thank you, Mary, for speaking to Isabel and I today. Um, we really appreciate it. I'm sure so do our listeners. And it's been really lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.